as an industry we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures, but the human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Rob Caporetto, programmer on Enchanted, to join us as we explore his journey. Please consider giving the show a five-star review or equivalent on your podcast platform of choice. It really, really helps with exposure. And as always, enjoy the show. So today I'm joined by Rob. How are you, mate? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? Really good. It's, uh, I mean, I joked about it beforehand, but uh, just getting real nepotistic here and we'll we started with Jess, we'll bring, uh, we'll bring you on, and I'm sure I can find ways to justify others on the player two team having somehow been responsible for making a video game. I don't know, they sent feedback to a survey at some point. Oh, yeah. Know. It's good to have you yeah, on, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to being able to chat with you further about all, all my uh, pasts and Your, your gaming exploits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and certainly poke into a side that, like, I think anyone who kind of has followed you throughout your various different pillars of work that you've kind of gotten up to over the years, um, I'm sure no exists, but perhaps don't necessarily know a huge amount about. So it'd be really kind of fascinating to dive into some of your game dev work on top of some of those other verticals as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I guess as as I begin every episode, we should uh, really rewind to a point well before um, the art of creating video games, because this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journeys led to this current point in time. And a big part of that journey is the discovery of video games in the first place. So where did it all begin? What was the first game experience or the first collection of experiences that you had that you recall? It would. It probably would have been Christmas 87. Um, yep. We had gotten a, a hand-me-down Atari 2600 from my uncle. And so they had a bunch of games. The notable ones was probably Yars Revenge, um, yep. which was like that. Um, Slot Races, which is probably the one I'd consider the first, because that was the lone two-player only game in the in the in the stack of carts we got. It was like the console and six games. Um, and, and that's Slot if it's Christmas. There's other people involved. You might yeah. go, gravitate so towards me, a me and my brother basically um, kind of deal. So yeah, because we were getting my grandparents. That would have been me, my brother, my parents, my grand, my grandmother and grandfather. And my uncle so yeah it would have just been it just would have been that and my sister would only have been one at that point <laughs> yeah, so definitely not playing yeah. video games at that age. no not at that age um but yeah so slot races was like a little overhead maze game where you both drove little cars and you had to sort of shoot each other in like the yeah. the usual early atari thing um because it's one of the games from like the first year or so so it would have been like nearly 10 years old by that point um you had like two minutes to just blast each other just as many times nuts. and the and they're like different mazes and different speeds and all of that. It's a fairly simple game, but kind of gets really fun when you're playing because it's only a two-player game. You don't have a against the computer mode in that. Yeah. So it was very, very challenging to just sort of like line up and use the the level and the tra- and to your advantage to take out your your opponent. So a pretty simple game, like when you look at it now, but it was oddly compulsive back then for a lot <laughs> of reasons. Um, oh no, I can totally see a lot of those reasons. I, I've, it's certainly one that I. I feel like at some point that I've tried, but obviously there's been lots of variants over the years since as well. Yeah. So um, it's a it's a tried and true formula that uh, worked then and still works now. So yeah. Um, yeah, how did how did those taste? Once you kind of got your first taste and 
in that kind of co-op setting, but also I'm sure like some of those more single player oriented experiences as well. Um, how did your taste continue to evolve from there? What did you find yourself immersing yourself in? Were there any particular franchises or genres or platforms that you really um, gravitated towards? Yeah. So we held the Atari as our main machine for a couple of years and a couple of years later, same, same uncle at Easter 89, we were down there and, uh, we managed to acquire his old uh, C- Commodore 64 with a with a bunch of games, this and that's where was I a think... legend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that one actually did involve money. It was like a hundred bucks for the the machine, the tape drive, and a couple of uh, compilation um, and some couple of tapes of games. Um, so a lot of like going through the library of that machine, which was you know fairly established, and and that's the point where it was starting to decline with you know newer yeah. machines and console hardware getting more popular. So a lot of the stuff I really enjoyed tended to be older. Um, like, And that sort of got me into playing like flight simulation games. Um, there was an early one called Ace, the air combat emulator was one I sort of got into. And I remember um, it's one where the, the thing that I remember as a kid was like, because this was stuff that didn't have instructions. So yeah, yeah, literally you learning, just like, jump in and work it out. Every key on the keyboard. And I remember like, there's one of the few flight games I played where if you took, were, you took off for, for takeoff and you're going too fast your plane would explode because you didn't raise the wheels and i remember doing that oh. thing of just pressing every key on the keyboard until one day i just hit there was like the uk for undercarriage because it's a uk developed game and oh, it's like of course. I've, I've survived i've survived takeoff <laughs> it was just one of those moments as a kid is like oh oh and i sort of got into that um i mean there was racing games like an early one that i loved was probably the longest title of every of any game i'm going to mention on this episode probably is the great american cross-country road race um it's right up there even by today's standards really <laughs> yeah yeah um it's basically what if what if cannonball run were a video game because the idea was you you start there's like four routes you can pick across america and you basically go from city to city driving legs you're against the clock and you've got to try and complete each leg before running out of time and as you do that you've also got like speed traps so you're not yep. careful you'll get like the radar warning from the cops you've got to either slow down to legal road limits or crank the speed up to outrun them you've got to manage your fuel and there's like fuel stops that you have to stop at to, to make sure you don't run a fuel and if you run out it's not game over um you've got to pump the it because it was the, the fire button on the joystick to accelerate and you just had to hit that in rapid succession just to like it. push the car to the next fuel stop <laughs> um, just sheer will if nothing yeah. else yeah. And it was like weather. So you'd go into like, it was all, it was all the weather and all the stuff was all the same every time you played. So you could sort of learn a route to be, to do the optimal time, but yeah. it's like, but you also had time of day. And one of the things that I didn't notice until like the last few years was depending on the time of day, the density of the traffic on the road would be, would be higher or lower. So you'd hear yeah, like, right. like, like six peak o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Like peak hour. And so it's like, Oh, you've got to go slower because you've got all these cars that you can't room through. But then you get into the dead of night, or and the you roads can, were... but... <laughs> yeah, but you'd, you'd crash and you'd go yeah, to the side of the road and have to regain speed. But you'd go into the dead of night, and there's like so little traffic that you could comfortably floor the car up to its top speed. It's really it was a game that, like, that was from 1985, and it's it was surprisingly innovative. Um, but it's one that you know I, I think it's a simple looking game, so it gets written off. But it's like no, it's actually pretty cool for what it was at the time um i mean we we hear all all the time these days you know in modern 
racing or driving based things look at the look at the physics look at the weather, <laughs> the weather. Look, at the, look at the yeah. time of day and those sort of things and we're going no no no, no. just 1985 is calling and it just wants to remind you it's been doing it for decades <laughs> yeah um get out of here is, porter <laughs> yeah i mean and the other one i'd charge from driving game back then is um stunt car racer which was yeah. a 3d 3d one um Classic. that was done by by um jeff Cramond, who did the formula one grand prix games it was sort of before those and it's like you drive a little little race car that looks like a slice of cheese with wheels bolted on uh you're on these tracks that are high off the ground and it's got to learn how to like do these do these jumps to to land that are like properly and land it properly so that was really innovative from a tech side um but also just a very different style of racing i mean there's other stuff i like look at that i I got into a lot of shoot 'em up games um a lot of the the main stuff on the c64 tended to be original so games like iridium Um, there was conversions of stuff like Salamander and, and uh, Gradius, or it was called Nemesis. Um, a lot of original ones. Another original one was called IO, which was really hard. And I have this story that a few years later, I just learned how to memorize it from some notes that another person posted on the internet. And I just remember getting up and just practicing to it and that. to that strategy. And I remember getting like maybe three, like there was like four stages all up because it was one of those games that you load off a tape and it just had to load in one in one session otherwise you had yeah. to wait for it to load you'd have to wait for games to load more junk off the tape which was which was slow um so i managed to get like a good way of it through that through that um sort of thing and then during this era a lot of um but the big one i think all out for me is a game that stands very high for a lot of reasons it's a game called paradroid and the idea is you take control of a little robot called the influence device and you're sort of looking at these ships overhead and the ships are filled with robots that have gone rogue and so the idea is you have to clear out the ships by going through each of the decks there's like 20 or so decks in the ship and they're all filled with robots from like low level maintenance and and like service droids that like you know ferry your drinks around to messenger robots maintenance robots then you have security robots and all these high deadly ones up and you and so part of it is you could shoot the robots of course which depending on like the tougher robots take more shots and you've got a fairly weak weapon to stand up to, to use but the other thing, the, the the big hook is that you could take over them. So think like Messiah, um, Shiny's yeah, okay. game from yep, yep. about 2000. So you do this little thing where you hold the fire button down, you go into transfer mode, you bump into a droid, and it goes into this little sub game where it's like a couple of circuits, and you're trying to light up these little lights. You've got like a minute or so to light up as many as you can. And if you get enough, you take over that robot. The challenge is, and so what I, you get you know, more hit points, you get more powerful weapons for some of them, but you can't hold on to them for that long. So you've got to frequently transfer the robot to robot. Otherwise, you, the, the host will explode because it's oh, drained okay, its yeah, battery. Yeah, okay. And you're bumped back to your original robot, which is really weak. And it's just, for, again, it's a, around a 90, it's a 1985 game, but so doing all this stuff like, yeah, ahead of its time, you've got things like line of sight. So you'll be, you'll be wandering around the map and the conceit that the game uses for its narrative is that you're accessing this robot through remote control. So you've got a local terminal that's like got the ship maps on screen and it's like just parsing the data from like what the robot sensors picks up. And so you'll see things like doors opening. It's like, oh, there's a robot there. And you sort of no, got to go it chase it down. And there's like all patrol routes and stuff. It's it's a fairly like, it's a fairly simple game, but it's just the way a lot of its systems worked and came together really struck a chord with me. And even now it's one I still go back to every so often. And just try to do it clear the decks and and do it one of my favorite moments was um i was originally i did a retrospective video of this uh game a few years ago and when i was recording footage for it um i did the transfer 
I was up on the bridge of the ship, which is where the, the toughest robot is, the, the triple nine. And I came up and I was going to transfer into, I was at a decently class robot, but that robot got shot. So I was bumped back to the starting droid, which is really weak and had to, and then, but initiated the transfer against the, the command droid. And so I had yeah. to do the, the transfer puzzle with like three shots and they had like 10 or 20, whatever it is. And you um, nailed it, right? And I nailed it. Good. And the, the bit is that I nailed it, and I had it, re- and I have it recorded. And it's actually footage that's in the the retrospective. It's just like, yeah, it's just one of those chef kiss moments. That's like that. Just emergent- to remind everyone watching, God mode right here. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's a emer- it's like a little emergent thing that just from like a fairly simple design, really executed so well. Um, and it's why that game just stands so high above for everything. Like nearly forty years later. Another... Yeah, I mean, we really talk a lot about emergence these days, but again, without wanting to kind of get too... But they were doing them all before. Like, they really were doing it from such a long time ago. There was a lot of games that really had these moments if you really picked them apart. Yeah, and this will this will explain a lot of things later that I know we're going to get to. But there's a lot of... It sort of feeds into why I like doing a lot of that other stuff. And one of the other big things I've really got to mention is it's sort of where I got introduced to the work of uh, Jeff Minter. Because for folks who are following the rest of what we do on Player 2, you'd have seen a few weeks ago I did the review of Aka R, which was yep. the 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 reinvention of that uh, old Atari Classic, unreleased yeah. game that he de- he designed this new take on. So it's where I got into his work, really, through these. There are games like Attack of the Mutant Camels. Um, a perennial favourite is Sheep in Space, which yes. is <laughs> you fly a little sheep around this planet, you've got to defend this planet from like little alien beasties, and then every so often your sheep needs to feed, so you've got to find patches of grass to land at. And it's, it's a fun little it's, game, but it's just it's just got this quirky charm that uh, Jeff Minter is known for, but that's also indicative of what like 1980s computer gaming was, especially coming from especially from the UK, which we yeah. got a lot of in Australia because you know you British colony that, yeah, and everything else yeah. like that. Um, so that's where I think a lot of the, the sort of odd tasting gaming that I have comes from really. I mean, and then eventually we moved to a PC. My brother needed stuff for, for doing year 12. Um, and How so, convenient. yeah, <laughs> oh, of course. And so you're not going to be using yeah, it all yeah. the time. So here's my chance. <laughs> Very much. Um, I mean, he used to play games as well and stuff like he was playing a lot of civilization and whatnot. Um, I was playing, I got into to space combat games like the wing commanders, the Star yep. Wars, you know, X-Wing and TIE Fighter. Um, Independence Wars, another one that was a bit later on. Um, MechWarrior 2 was a very big milestone point. Sorry, did I just uh, hear Ken? <laughs> so, sorry for anyone, like, Dev Diary exclusive listeners who aren't familiar, but that is, uh, like, talking about mechs or MechWarrior specifically is a trigger word within the, with the, within the Player 2 editorial and team side, so. <laughs> yeah, so that was that. Like, I remember... Um, my cousin was a bit ahead of us and had a, a CD drive. And, he, and I remember we used to talk on the phone a lot. And he was telling me about this intro and we went over and eventually the next time, you know, my family went to visit my, my, my aunt and that, and he showed me, it's just like, holy, holy crap. And it took me a while before our PC at home could run that, but yeah. uh, just a beautiful experience. Um, but I think like one of those things is I did really stick with solo gaming after that point. Like, whereas on the C64, me and my brother would play a bunch of stuff cooperatively um we didn't really do that much on the pc we sort of played uh games separately independent yeah yeah. um and then uh, i mean eventually my my brother grew out of of playing games and stuff well obviously i kept to it because um they're the best 
Yeah, <laughs> they're the best, and you know, and honestly, it's the the creative spark. Um, but yeah, like, I so mean, like, that's all fair too. Like, I don't think it's a totally unusual thing as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I think about my kids these days who are only two and four and are not playing video games yet, but like, they they sit there and they play together with things all the time, with you know, just toys or whatever the case happens to be, and the time will come in the next couple of years where they start to be a bit more independent about it. And I can even see signs of my son from time to time. It's like, no, no, get her, get her away. I just want to play with my plane or whatever it happens to be. Um, and that is a, and again, they'll probably reconvene a little bit when it comes to video games, and that discovery and those sort of things. And of course there might be co-op games that they'll stick with over the years or whether it be them couch or online or whether the case happens to be. But of course in time, I, I kind of hope as well, because there's such a, a rich library of wonderful, um, wonderful solo experiences i hope that in time they kind of diverge again and go out and discover all that there is through the exact same sort of lens that you were just describing as well yeah absolutely like um one one other co-op experience i did really enjoy was um star lancer uh, which was the the post so chris roberts who designed wing commander left uh ea origin uh started the studio digital anvil in the late 90s and they did Star Lancer, which is sort of their riff on the on the Wing Commander games. And then there was Freelancer, which was their riff on the Privateer games. But Star Lancer had this thing where you could play cooperatively with a friend. And a friend from mine at uni, so we're jumping forward to 2000 here, we, for a period we played through most of that game cooperatively. Um, and it was an, was an experience that I really enjoyed and that I haven't seen for a while, um, which is a bit of a shame. But, but I mean, the, these things will come back. Yeah, they will come back. I mean, we've seen a bit of a resurgence of space games. Just, um, just the more of the big open, open ones, rather than the more the more laser focused ones, yeah. the narrow focused ones. But so happens. Um, and so yeah, I mean, I mostly like. It's funny. I mostly, you know, I, went, I kept PC gaming, and then um, I sort of shifted back to consoles because i shifted away from using a pc so for a while i was pretty much 100 percent a mac person because of work um in recent years i've gone back to being both like i do all my video stuff yes. like the mac is sort of my home life computer and the pc is mainly for work um streaming capture yeah, all of that stuff um and so for a while it's just like just the mac so i meant to doing console and handheld stuff like um my final year going to uni was was greatly eased with a GBA. Um, and I spent Very a lot of time good. with GBA, then DS, and then I was sort of like, so I DS and PSP, and then 3DS and Vita. I would rock either one at various times. I've still got all that stuff. Um, no surprises. Um, no, you absolutely should. Uh, I'll say it and I'll say it again. The Vita is a criminally underlooked platform. Uh, thank overlooked you. platform, sorry. and um, Mishandled. Very mishandled. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. <laughs> rest in peace i say that as um, someone who's been like cranking out things like sly cooper on it lately but anyway yeah no it's 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 a graciously underappreciated machine and i really wish it really found its footing properly because it was great hardware for the time and like ergonomically and capability wise oh for sure and yeah so i've always had a handheld system in the bag like once i finished uni and was working professionally at least before the dark times when you know i mostly work from home these days or worked from home I mean, you say dark um, times, but that's more of a game, gaming opportunity if you can swing it, right? That is true. I will give you that. that Whilst is, that being is professional, of course. Of course. Of course, you know, commuting, lunch breaks, things like that. Exactly. You play games lunch in break time. is there at home on my own. I've got my, my PC or my PlayStation or whatever it happens to be right there. Good yeah. to go. 
yeah, there is nothing wrong with having I mean, a gaming in, break during lunch. In my case, like I will bring my PlayStation into work and then I have to sit there. This is, I mean, this, no, this is not going to get me in trouble with any PR. Um, there, there are times where like I'll be sitting in my office at work and I've got to, like I'm in a school, so it's a very open sort of setting. There's lot, uh, lots of windows because students need to be able to see in or out or whatever the case is. And I'll be sitting there and occasionally we have to put up some paper over the windows because the student's watching through the window as I play an embargo title that they're not allowed to see. Um, <laughs> oh, Oh, I had a work experience uh, thing like that once um, for a project where we were we were doing a, a rollout of a mobile project for a client and yeah. we couldn't be off in the secret branch office because we had to do other client work. So we had all of the walls t- with paper over yeah, them cover for, it all. covering it all up for months. It was it was kind of kind of a morale drain when it was permanently up for that long rather than like being up for a few days here or a few days here. Yeah, it's, I mean, look, it's it's a bit of fun when you can when you can swing it and yeah uh, certainly I mean, those kids that i oh, will not be announcing the game because then pr will never talk to me again those students that did peek through the uh, peek through the window this is before phone uh, victorian government schools were really clamping down hard on phones and there was all of a sudden a phone looking there <laughs> recording what was on my screen about you in here now <laughs> oh no <laughs> delete every single thing that's on that phone i want to see it gone from your deleted items as well and never come back here lest we have to have an even harsher conversation <laughs> <laughs> um so good, good fun times for everyone and pr don't worry, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, again, I sort of branched from playing. I, I generally play a lot of everything. Like, I think the stuff that really tends to, to speed is like shooters and sort of action-y games. Yep. I've been getting a little more into like action RPGs and bit over the last few years. I was never really exposed to the C64 era. And the yep. PC stuff tended to be more like the big, heavy RPGs of like, you know, the... Um, stuff like Baldur's Gate and all of that. I never really got into those. And the then. commitment for those is huge too. Yeah. And it's it's hard it was hard enough back then. Like let alone now. Let alone now. Right. Absolutely. Like even now if I ditch all my extracurricular things and focus on some of those games, maybe, but that would make things really boring. Like yeah. I like having extracurricular things. Like my my classic games work, other community stuff that I do. So yeah, you know. Um but yeah, so nowadays it's like I, I tend to still play more console stuff than PC stuff, even though like I miss like I'll admit stuff like shooters just aren't quite the same. Um, but I've been playing. But there's a, a bit convenience of... factor as well. Yeah, there is, and like um, an example is like with Aka Art. You know, I played that through on Switch for a review. That was what we got code for, and it was great. But I ended up buying it on PC, and it was a completely different experience on PC because you're playing with the mouse, and yeah. you could just zoom your that little targeting your precision just zoomed the reticle all over the screen and i got to like i was top i was in the top 10 high scores worldwide at one point i just had this session of like two and a half hours and i got to like level just 47 out of 50. yeah and it's just like i haven't got back I don't, I don't know if i've fallen out i've been busy with some other project stuff but it's just like yeah this game was meant to be played with a mouse um and they did a good job getting it to work on switch control wise but you just want to play it's with not a mouse. Quite the same not quite the same yeah exactly so yeah i mean the kind of stuff i don't really play is like sports games i don't really like playing live service or mmos like yep. I, I it's the forced fomo because you've got to commit to the game oh, on the yeah. game schedule and not not you know not, not my schedule own. and yeah and i really like I, i've been watching some stuff like one a really dear friend of mine um she got into streaming during the pandemic and she started doing destiny stuff before branching out to be more general variety stuff and every time she does raids and stuff, sometimes she'll stream them when if the if the group is cool with it. Um, and you, you look at the gunplay; it's like Bungie know how to do their gunplay. Oh, yeah, like it's like 
the general sort of thing of Destiny is like I I like the feel what I've seen of it, but like it's that just kinetic I can't, feel here. Yeah, they they get the game feel down, but I just can't commit to the timing for that thing. Like I want to be able to play every so often and do a little bit, but you get the FOMO, you get the 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 like the campaigns being taken offline or whatever, and it's just like no thanks. I just yeah, can't just commit. slowing it down that little bit more, or or finding yeah. ways to not feel like you are missing out by yeah. doing it slower is is a huge thing, and I absolutely relate to that one. It's like I picked up Destiny Two, loved Destiny Two, and then as soon as the expansion started rolling along, we start seeing the annual content. I just fell off because I realised I just wasn't going to be able to keep up with it, and if I persist for a little while, it's just going to start to really cut me up when I can't do the next raid or experience the next thing or, you know, Lightfall comes out recently and like, oh, my, but I have, for me, it's exactly the same as, and I, you know, I guess for some, maybe some listening will relate to this, the Marvel movies. Yeah. I'm like, it starts a snowball and then it just, you almost just give up. Like, yep. I, like, the I last sort of... movie I saw was Age of Ultron for context, people. That's how <laughs> long ago it's been because I think I missed, I think Ant-Man might've been next. And I missed that for whatever reason. But then the next one came along. Like, oh, well, I can't watch that because I haven't seen Ant-Man yet. And yep. then it just piles on and on and on. And then you just go, yeah, not anymore. Like, And now because they've got the TV series running alongside, oh. it's even worse. Like <laughs> I, I got to I got to Endgame and I was like, okay, this chapter is done. I don't feel that bad. And so I've watched Yeah, there the was a bow. Series. You could put a bow on it. You could put a bow on it. And there's a couple of series I've watched, but I haven't followed it the way I used to. And I feel a bit a bit like that with some of the Star Wars stuff. So I'm glad that like it's the movies are over and they just run one series at a time. So, you know, I can watch Mando. I the can delivery wait for model it. is pretty good with that at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think they've got it and I'm happy they've sort of paired it back. So it's like, I can keep up with it and I can, and I can follow all the stuff that I want to follow. And so I can look forward to Andor season two, like next year and see how that resolves itself because yeah. oh, they, they set themselves up very nicely with that. Um, yeah, and yeah, I really it. wish more games would do that because then, Sometimes you get in the mood to try something a little different and you don't feel as bad about like not having to just compete with that rush. So yeah, and I think it's why a lot of a lot of the times, you know, a lot of the stuff my output for player two has tended to be sort of on the indie side of the scale. Yeah. And um, you know, I always think of trying stuff out of your wheelhouse, which I'm not as good at. And I uh, but then again, when I covered Forgotten City, like I remember How good like, is it? How good is it? I was gushing with Tim about it on the, the, the pixel cast I was just on. And it's just like, and I remember like the, the call went out for someone to take it up for review. And if memory serves, I think it was like, no one had snapped it up. So it's like, I'll, yeah, I'll it, was kind it. Of a, it was a weird spot. Like I'd been sent the code. This is, I guess, going behind the scenes on the player two side for people. I've been sent the code, but I also had done the dev diary. And I felt like that was kind of a conflict a little bit. Um, and so, I, I I was very yeah I mean that was yeah with um with Nick Pierce for that one that I felt geez that feels like forever ago I'll have to take like, we're yeah. chatting and work out when that was but that was that was probably a couple of years couple, ago couple now. years ago I think it was a 2020 game so um 2021 because I joined the crew late 2020 oh was it oh, yeah geez. I feel like it was mid 2021 um oh that's yeah that's kind of crazy um, i know yeah, but yeah it was it was one of those like conflict of interest and i was sitting there going come on someone take this like i can tell this is something brilliant please and then sh- yeah sure enough you jumped on it and i was i was thrilled that you were gonna gonna give it a go and it was it was fantastic yeah i was just like that that because i don't normally play like walking simulator kind of games 
And so I wasn't sure what to expect, but I just sat down and I remember playing it. I started on a Saturday night, played it for a bit, liked what I saw, went to bed, got up Sunday, and I just found myself literally playing the whole thing Sunday, just like working through and getting to the end. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this really is so excellently put together. And I'm glad it's done well. Like I believe that's the case. It did well for them. As far as I can tell, yeah. Uh, That's always great. And it's so deserved. Like it's like, that's some of the stuff I really enjoy is just seeing the independent works go out and do something um, so different and just pull it off. And it, and it shows as a you know, Skyrim mod. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's just like, it's just this mod. It's like, yeah, we just go completely from scratch, going from Unreal and just making something utterly outstanding. A really, really amazing thing like that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of where I am these days is like I like picking various different things out. Um, I'm not as good as it as I as I should be and I hopefully, you know, in picking up stuff for p2 i get a chance to try and explore a bit more yeah and it's also sure. sort of covers with uh some of the other stuff i do which we're gonna get to yeah so um, i mean let's start let's start to lean into kind of because the, there are a few different pillars it's the way that you're kind of covering the games maybe through the written form we've got a uh, video on a lot of the retro content that you've kind of discussed things like beyond the scan lines and then yeah. of course there is the game development work which is the core reason why you're on <laughs> on the show and we'll, we'll obviously get to that too but we'll we'll save that little that pillar till last because well, I want to keep people on the hook for a bit longer. Let's just be honest. <laughs> um, Sounds fair. So let's uh, let's let's begin with kind of some of the, the coverage of video games themselves. And I guess where did where did that itch kind of first begin for you? It's I, I feel like so when I went back, I remember doing some writing for a place. So when you know when you're a teenager, you got the internet for the first time. So we're talking mid nineties ish. I remember setting up a terrible web place on like GRCs, which is long dead, which is about some of this stuff. Like I'd gotten into emulation and was messing around with that. And so I remember writing a terrible page with some, some little write-ups of some of the games I really enjoyed and linked to stuff that you could download, even though that was when a lot of the crackdowns started happening for content like that, for, for like distributing games. There was a massive, massive war with like um, trade, trade bodies in the U S going after sites. It was such Um, a good thing that over here in Australia, we were so, back yeah. when it comes to the way that we handle things that we had lots more time to squeeze to squeeze uh, yeah blame um, stone on that one but yeah so i started doing that i remember writing some little review pieces for someone else's fan page at some page some some time but i sort of always had done that and then i sort of sort of when i went to focusing more on just playing pc stuff and going through uni and work i never really did much and then flash forward to 2013 um i met through some friends another friend and one, and we, we were both in a sort of similar life position at the time in, in terms of career-wise. We were both between jobs um, and we both were tinkering with game dev on the side. And one of the things my friend had done um, was he started making some, some simple Let's Play videos of some Apple II games that were yeah. sort of important to him as a kid. And so we were talking and I remember watching this stuff and we became friends and I sort of started doing a similar thing. So I started out at this point, this was just with emulation I was just doing very early Let's Plays. These are all still up on the channel. Um, all above board, though. You didn't hear the word emulation. Nobody heard the word emulation. All legit. Nothing to say. Um, this is this <laughs> is a thing that's worth worth actually clarifying. Emulation itself is perfectly legal. It is the software aspect yes. of it. Like, for example, getting your ROMs. That's where that's the dodgy part. Yeah. That's the dodgy part. Um, so these were like again, a lot of the stuff I focus on is games that I actually own in some form, like yeah. properly. Um, and especially this has probably annoyed people a lot because I used to focus on just the Commodore 64 but as I started getting into collecting other computers and consoles I started adding coverage of those games onto my channel and so I so it's initially, a slippery like, slope right it is a slippery slope 
Um, but there's a there's there's one thing that's sort of really apparent in the retro space is there's a lot of tribalism and a lot of the schoolyard sort of like my machine's better than yours. And after a while, at least for me, I just kind of got really bored of it because I think it gets in the way of learning about cool games. Um, so Absolutely. for a number of years, I, I did just Let's Play stuff where I could record a couple in a day. You know, try, I, I initially moved... And then I, I moved away from emulation, doing it all with original hardware. Like, So I was getting hardware, I was getting copies of the games, um, and I was loading them in, doing it off, off, original, off original stuff because it adds a little authenticity. And this is the point where YouTube started getting high frame rate support. Yes. So I could upload stuff at like native 50 hertz or native 60 hertz where necessary. And I think that just adds a this extra spark to that authenticity of seeing these games smoothly animated. Almost, um, almost as they were intended. Very much. And I think that's something that's really important for reflecting on how these games looked as well as how they played. Yeah. Because if you're playing on an emulator, most of the time you're playing with a gamepad and most, and you know, and if you're playing like Nintendo or Sega stuff, that's fine. If you're playing arcade games, you really need a proper arcade stick. And some arcade games have completely wild control setups. Um, these like trackballs and spinners and, and things like that. Your, your gamepad is not really going to feel the same. Your mouse there, is not It wasn't a standard. It wasn't a standard. That's exactly right. Um, and computers like the Commodore 64, I was covering the Atari's home computers, the Amiga, they all use, you know, classic joysticks with a single fire button and where you'd play a platform game and press up to jump, which annoys a lot of people. So many people are annoyed by that. Yeah, like, look, there's a, there's a time and place, I think, for me. There is a time and place. Like, yeah. if you're playing these games, you played them with that kind of joystick, so you did up to jump, right? If you're playing Mario, you're used to a separate button to jump, yeah. and I get it. Um, but, like, if you're playing with a gamepad, these games that were up to jump, they're not going to feel right. And I, 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 it's a again, this is one of those frustrations I've had from my observations over the years in making in doing retro game content is people don't quite get into the mind space of what it's like to actually experience this stuff properly. And the vacuum. Yeah. The vacuum that the context is really important. Um, and I feel I'm not as good as delivering that as some other people. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, but honestly, like my personal growth on that is, has always been a challenge just for, for a bunch of reasons. It just feels when you're, when you're small, you don't have much of an audience that actively engages. It's hard to feel like you're, to get the beat of the pulse to know if you're actually doing things better or worse. And when people seem to only want to say negative things, it's it kind of disheartening. Own, it after in your head, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, well, if you only want me to do this one platform, why aren't you there when I do stuff on that platform kind of deal? Um, because the algorithm pushes them there for some reason. They make the smart-ass comment and then they disappear into the wind and you're just left to ruminate on it. Yeah algorithmic i i've said it plenty of times algorithmically driven feeds destroys niche creators yes i don't mind existing in a niche i just want to be able to survive in that niche in my own way and have that work with the people who are actually interested in that niche um yeah 100 completely agree with you um but yeah it, that's, it is but, as you say getting harder yeah um but like so i was mostly doing this kind of stuff um and and then in 2019 like tw like so i had like as a niche i was growing in this very very decent rate for for what was a part-time hobby project and i was pretty happy with it yeah. 2018 happened and it flatlined and i could never work out why because it was like i was still doing the stuff i was doing i was still covering you know a mixture of new stuff and a mixture of old stuff hitting the same cadence all those yeah, sorts of things yeah all of that stuff um 
but it was just like it flatlined. And so I was like, okay, I obviously need to do something different. And at the time, um, this will come to some of the, the, the career stuff, but I wasn't really happy with, with career stuff. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and do a change in focus to focusing on more scripted stuff. And that's when my old Let's Play series died and I started Beyond the Scanlines, which was very much trying to be a little more in-depth with the mechanics because I found doing Let's Plays after a while, you don't get to really explore stuff in detail. And like if most people are dropping off within like five minutes of a video, it's not worth doing a two-hour video of of a game that's going to take two hours to play through. So I could sort of do this thing offline, grab a whole bunch of footage, write a nice little essay-ish exploration, try to bring in a little historical context where I can and hopefully do something a little different. And I I spice up with things, a little occasional like group content of, I did a video last year, which was like a bunch of Atari 2600 games, I think are neat. So it was just like some of my favorites, like it's not like a top 10 or anything. It's just like, there's a bunch that I think are neat. Yeah. It's a spotlight. So a bit of bit of spotlight stuff, some hardware-y stuff um, and things like that. So I like doing the different bit of variety. Um, I backed off the cadence a little slower again this year, partly because of some other stuff we're going to talk about. Oh, I yeah. think we might talk yeah, about. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of stuff, that stuff in there. And for me, it's like, also we have this thing where a lot of retro games, like video producers and writers are either American or UK based. And there's a very narrow channel that those both provide. Like if you, you look at a lot of American writers, there's a lot of fixation on the NES and the NES is a great machine. There's a lot of cool games for it, but you don't hear about those. A lot of it's yeah. always fixated on like this, the same, the same dozen, maybe, the same yeah. dozen. Yeah. And it's like, and for, for like, for and, us, yeah, in it's a good reason in some ways, of course, like they are you know, genuinely classic games, but there's a those, vast library out there that gets lost. Yeah. And it's like, well, why aren't these ones that don't get talked about talked about? Like some people might say, oh, well, they're crap. They don't deserve to be talked about. But it's like sometimes that's important for context. But also like when you think about it, I remember um, a stat I heard that like there's 700 licensed NES games in America that came out in, in NTSCU. Yeah. In PAL regions, it's like 200. We got stiffed horribly badly. 500 games we missed out on, yeah. Yeah. And then of course you've got the vault, you know, the gulf of stuff that was just like in Japan on the Famicom that never got localized. Oh yeah, and there's most those of, that, too, of course. <laughs> yeah, and so you get all these games that you're never going to know about. And like, when I think about it, my experiences with the NES as a kid from friends was like Mario mostly. Mario, Zelda, Metroid. No, Kiddick, no, yeah. I never saw Zelda or Metroid. No, okay, I saw like Mario One, the Mario One Duck Hunt Cart. Friends oh, um, had Mario Three, and I remember playing Excite Bike. Remember seeing Beam's Aussie Rules football game once or twice, which is you know Australian only release as far as I can tell. Um, <laughs> and that's yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that's the case. So I guess we got yeah. one up on the on other regions of the world. Those yeah, unlucky that and the cricket and the cricket classic. game. Yeah, I think um, it's, one of them is is at Ac- is installed at Acme now. So for folks who've never seen it, yeah, and they're in Melbourne, get down to Acme and um, check yeah, out. Yeah, I did. I did forget about that, but yeah, it would be. Um, as as part of the the play it again nineties project. Um, but yeah, so a lot of that stuff and, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that was like out of my wheelhouse. Like, again, you know, I had a fairly small exposure to the NES and I've seen a lot of games and like, oh, I've never heard of this. This looks awesome. And because no one, it never crossed my wheelhouses. You know, I learned about it like in the last years that I've gone into retro collecting and whatnot. It's like, cool. And there's 
whole bunch of stuff out there that's just really cool to enjoy. Um, and a lot of what I care about in making videos is trying to just be that. Like, even if a game I don't like, I try to at least be fair on it because oh, it's course. sort of a bit boring to do the whole angry caustic critic thing where it's like it's played out it's boring and you don't get any value out of like out of it like i think you can learn something even from terrible games like even if a game is terrible even if a game is crap you can at least be respectful for it and take away some lessons on what it does and i think that you know something that i find that i find is terrible someone else might love and sometimes but there are things that you know you can love something despite the flaws at least it's how I see it. And I think that we've got we've got a lot more room for people to explore that. And I'd like to think contributing to that with the the way I run scan lines really helps that. Um, yeah, I think that it's really important that, um, and regardless of whether we're talking about something older or newer, there are some games that might be considered lesser for whatever reason. But there can often be this, this, this a nugget that's nestled within the game. There's actually really really impressive super advanced for its time and those things just get lost because maybe the other aspects aren't as strong as they perhaps could or should or were perceived to be and so that revolutionary idea just gets lost and you see it happen yeah in in current games and in yeah. and in older ones as well yeah just in the case of the older absolutely. games they kind of get lost to obscurity yeah and, um it takes people like yourself to kind of lift them back up again yeah i mean that's absolutely that's absolutely right um and i think that there's like one of the other things for me is a lot of this stuff filters down through inspirations for some of my personal stuff that's that's one of the reasons why i love doing the analysis because then i'm cribbing ideas of things that i think are like really neat that i want to might want to be inspired by with some of my own games projects um because like i'm not an innovative innovative designer like i'm primarily a programmer we'll we'll get yeah. to this later but it sort of filters down. Um, and, you know, I mean, for me, it's like, I think just being able to write about this stuff, like, it's it's really interesting to just explore it. Like, I guess it's a hobby to to exploring old games that no one talks about or don't really get much of a spotlight. And um, finding the right audience of creator peers for that has been really interesting. Um, like, there's a few, you know, there are... The scene is interesting in weird ways. Um, like a lot of places gaming related there's a lot of toxicity um yeah. which kind of sucks and um some of the the diversity issues that are being challenged um for better in more modern spaces aren't quite as there yet um yeah there's a problem like honestly like you know if i look at my audience's average stats as as a it's presenter graphics and those sort of things yeah the, the demographics is like you know so i'm in my early 40s a lot of my audience is late 40s to 50s and that's a generation away and it it does feel weird sometimes because that's where some of like i've i've had my share of horrible things from people in that age group which is kind of disappointing when you think about it you'd, you'd like to think they're to quote a, a phrase like big enough and ugly enough to kind of know better and yeah yet, and you know. yet sometimes it's that age that's actually served as the barrier to the understanding. yeah like it's, it's definitely a generational thing of like um and you see these sort of like other things where it's like it's a casual sexism here or there that's like mm, no thanks and and, yeah. and things like that and i'll admit i guess you know i'm influenced by being friends with a lot of developers and and stuff who are quite a bit younger than me and it's like there's a lot of stuff i've learned just by being around those people and hearing of their experiences and it's like so i can try and be a better person myself that's 
one of the big reasons why I like the game space when it's at its best. Um, I feel like in other spaces, I've never had, never learning the grow to grow like that in a better way has been not quite as straightforward. Um, yeah. I mean, it's the right. same with, I guess, you know, so many different walks of life. If you can surround yourself by good people, you'll be better off for it. And so um, it's, about finding, it's about finding those people. And that that's not to be dismissive of anyone that's kind of in that, those, potentially those older demographics that may have said a thing here, there, and may not have even meant anything by it. But Yeah, um, no, that's true. And that, I guess uh, that is also yeah an important thing is that sometimes it's not actually meant to be an intention. Sometimes it's said without thinking and realizing yeah. there's actually a consequence there, but they don't actually harbor any ill will towards anyone at all. But um, that is true. But oh, at the same I, I can... time, there's there's things that you can learn from those different groups, different demographics, different um, whatever. Really, like the, just the, that diversity that we we talk about all the time that is. Um, growing within the video game landscape as well as lots of other aspects of our lives lives as well is really really important yeah absolutely um and yeah it's always cool to see when people pick up who've never really followed like older stuff get a spark of interest in it and start getting into collecting or or playing around with these older things and uh, it's why i love things like say um the switch online stuff yes uh things like arcade archives which is by a company called hamster that brought a bunch of arcade games You'll see them crop up on Switch and PS4. And PlayStation all the time, yeah. Yeah. Um, those projects are really cool for just getting these older games into people's hands in a curated fashion. Like there's also the Evercade system from Blaze where yep. um, they're a UK firm licensing like various console and arcade games, putting them on carts and dedicated handheld or home system to play them on for a little bit of curation and organization. And I think that that's another way that you know we get a lot of context brought in for what all these games are about. And I think, because it's one of those problems with gaming compared to other forms of media. Like, you know, you look at literature, you can easily get books, new copies of books made in the 1800s, you know. Um, TV is had ups and downs, but you could still get most earlier series legally if they're not, even if they're not actively being aired, they're on DVD or streaming. Yeah. Music, of course, um, the same kind of deal. But games has always struggled a lot because of the technology aspect. And yeah, the compatibility, why, the changes in the controller, all of those sorts of things. There's yeah, it, many it, of the technologies just, associated with it. Yeah, absolutely. So many reasons, which is why it's great by the work Microsoft have done with the, the Series X in getting like Xbox One Air, Xbox One and 360 games running, you know, the backwards compatibility that PlayStation 5 has, blah, you know, all the stuff Nintendo's adding like we just talked about. All of these are great things out there to, to help keep... Um, these older games in people's conscious, you know, and the, and the mini consoles as well that have come out over the years. Yes. NES Classics, NES Classic, PlayStation Classic, the some of the other ones that we've not gotten in Australia, the, the Mega Drive ones and all of that. The, the ones that have done really good, really well curated libraries, excellent things for just helping celebrate all this stuff because there's a lot of it that's just going to be indirectly lost because of legal shenanigans, right? Yes. There's licenses, there's developers that they can't track down for, for ownership stuff. And you get weird things like, uh, you know, Metal Gear Solid. How many years ago it was? Maybe three years ago. The yeah. the, the collection that was like a PS3 360, that disappeared. Yeah. And they said, oh, it's because of music licensing stuff. We'll have it back in a few months. Here we are in 2023 and they're still not back. It still hasn't. Wow. As far as I know, I don't think they're back yet. Well, I, I, yeah, I have to check that. But yeah, I have physicals of those, so it's like... Yeah, um... so, so do I. Just you got you got to <laughs> lock those sorts of things down. But at the same time, yeah. like if someone wanted to get, do it, 
want someone to see what they're about. Yeah, you have to you go can't buy something physical. You can't just snap your fingers and yeah, you know, download it to your machine. Yeah, and that's like that's all really important stuff. And I mean, there's also the and that also brings in a whole a whole legal kettle of fish as well because of course, like I saw there was um, a video from someone today. So with the stuff, you know, we're, we're recording this about a week before um, the Wii U and E and 3DS eShop shut down. Yes, and there was um, someone who posted a video about buying every single downloadable title off them to for the sake of getting them into the hands of people for preservation archiving and it's just like that's really cool it sucks that the the legal sad aspect, in a way too yeah and it's sad but it's like yeah it's it's it sucks that you know there are reasons why this stuff happens and it's like we need better ways like in terms of managing it you know and there's work done by people like the um video game history foundation in terms of challenging some of the yes. legal provisions but that's only in the states and how's a lot of that stuff going to filter over here to oz or in europe or wherever well, it's not else say that afl game that you're talking about for example yeah like right now that's that's basically in the ether you can find yeah. a second-hand copy for the nes or go to acme and play it but eventually that project will wind down and they'll probably leave or whatever and you're not going to have that chance and it's like how do you manage all of that on that kind of deal? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you, you can only contribute in ways of just in, just informing people about what there was, even if they're not going to be able to play it, at least just showing the moments, showing it in action, putting some context around it just helps sort of bring all that together. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a maturity that, like, we are, you know, we are seeing kind of nurtured and grow within video games themselves, but there's a maturity that we still haven't quite hit when it comes to the ways in which we acknowledge, preserve, and protect what has come prior. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you kind of get to that period, I don't know, maybe anything Super Nintendo era and prior. It's all pretty much covered. Challenging. Yeah. Like, yeah, like you, you basically, the big problem is that you rely on the enthusiast community going great, going the gray route. A lot yeah. of it is done by that. Um, but, you know, we saw things like with the Nintendo Giga League a few years ago where there was a lot of games oh, that, yeah. that were... That. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of games out there that were, like, never went through lot check or whatever, that were cancelled, that were basically finished. And I would have loved to have seen those pop out on, like, Virtual Console or, or something like, you know, Star Fox 2 being released yes. through the SNES Mini. That was... That was a beautiful thing, and I it really want to see more of it. Too. Yeah, it was a huge moment, like because it was this long rumored game, you know, long in development, and then it just disappeared right at the time of release because it had gone through that stuff. But they just scrapped it because it's like, well, let's focus on the N sixty four. But the fact it's now there through the SNES Mini, and of course on on the Switch Online that you can play it, it's like it's cool. It's it is an awkward game. It is a game of its time, and it yeah. suffers. But it's cool that you could sit down and play it and learn it, um, which I need to do more. I've only played it a little bit. I want to. Sp- I should spend more time for it myself. <laughs> yeah, I haven't given that one nearly enough time yet, despite the availability, as you say. Um, so obviously, we've spoken about the video side. There's obviously the writing, which I think. Uh, I mean, you touched on obviously some recent reviews and those sort of things you're doing. Uh, there's reset as well. Um, some important pillars here within this. Yeah. Space okay. Before we dive into um, before we dive into the making of games, yeah, there are a few the- really important pillars there. Yeah, okay. So doing the video stuff led me to um, joining Reset, um, which I sadly left at the end of last year for some some personal reasons. Um, yeah. 
Reset is an Australian-led uh, Commodore 64 magazine focusing on a lot of coverage of the new developments. So one of these things with all these vintage platforms, especially over the last 10 years, is that there's a lot of people, probably nostalgia-driven, picking up development tools and making a lot of new games for these machines. Um, and these, are, these aren't very simple productions. There are some really beautiful works out there. Um, on the Commodore 64, over the years, we've had... Um, um, some of Lambeer's classics, like Super Crate yes. Box and uh, Luftrausers, got demade um, by ch- by a chap called um, oh, what's his Paul oh, Koller. Yeah. Yeah, he's a Dutch Dutch fellow who's demade them for the Commodore sixty four. They're very good ports that pretty much nail those original games. Um, there's some also cool creative works. Um, a German team called Knights of Bytes released a game called Sam's Journey, which is this amazing sort of Mario World esque platformer. They're in the middle of now porting that over to the NES. Um, I believe that's coming out very soon. Um, so it's, it's crazy like, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a great example that is that is actually really accessible is a game called Xeno Crisis, which is by a yep. British team called Bitmap Bureau. They originally wrote it for the Mega Drive. They then ported it to like the Dreamcast, the Neo Geo, and modern systems. So you can get it on Steam for, for PC, Mac, Linux. You can get it on the Xbox, the PlayStation, or the Switch. And they like I I think I they as I understand it, they basically wrote the original game um using an SDK called SGDK for the Mega Drive. And the way they engineered it was they could then port that stuff into their framework in Unity for the modern systems. And so it's like plays exactly the same, has like some expanded UI stuff because you've got more screen resolution, but yeah. it's still running all that code the core that they is the core of it, it is, yeah. is identical. And so things like that I really love for accessibility stuff, you know. And we've been seeing publishers throw old stuff on Steam and, and of course, good old games or GOG has has had its name staking at for ever since Jeez, day now, one, really. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so so a lot of my stuff with Reset was sort of reviewing. I never got to do a lot of features. I did one column that was sort of like a – it was called The Rewind and it was sort of like every issue I'd pick a game because we, because we weren't doing issues frequently, we sort of did a theme on each issue. So um, – we had an issue that was train game so it's like okay well here's a train based game sit down and play it write up some thoughts from from everyone and yeah. things like that to sort of contribute like that um again i think that it was a lot of where i got a sort of a lot of practice in writing stuff um but there was it's sort of one of those things where none of the the feedback of there wasn't much avenue for feedback so i i, I sort of felt hitting the wall there um so I felt sort of I felt like I hit my wall there as a as a writer, and there's not much opportunity to sort of go above and beyond because, based on just my own availability, I guess. Um, which is one of the things I've loved about joining P two is that I sort of get that, and I feel like I feel like my writing's been getting better. Um, yeah, sli- been... sliding my uh, editorial hat on. Feel free to like whatever whatever you like. If you've got a feature idea, throw it at us. We'll, we'll happily. Yeah, we'll there, happily... there's some out there that I, I sort of want to get a pitch together because I think maybe some of this stuff on accessibility of like how you can legally access like more old games in cool ways and just do some features about that i feel like would be some nice nice write-ups there always welcome um because that stuff that i don't think fits with the wheelhouse of what i'm doing um on the video on my own video project side um and yeah because whatever i've been with p2 like i said for a bit over two years bit over two years because it was it was late-ish 2020 when i when i hopped in um and like it, as I said, it was sort of a lonely process doing videos as well. And so, I, I, getting an opportunity to, to do some writing a bit out of out of my regular wheelhouse, but also getting a chance to sort of grow and get some feedback has been really good for that for me on a personal level. That I hope 
hope has filtered down um both in my own projects and with the the pieces i'm writing for for p2 um oh, that, that's it's, awesome. it's really been great for that um that's 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 awesome to hear and i mean as i said i mean in the in the editorial with the editorial hat on we'd be, <laughs> love to 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 see and hear more of you on the on the platform as well but of course it's fantastic to hear that all those things kind of you know speaking to one another and help, kind of helping grow these various different aspects of um of your creative work so yeah as we now trend to as we're nearly an hour into the show we finally <laughs> trend towards the game uh game design aspect you've you highlighted before for anyone unaware you you know programming is something you are quite competent in um yeah. and so how did from all of those collections of experiences when you were younger how did you go from consumption to creation oh okay now we get some now we get for the law so wind back to so we got the commodore 64 in 1989 and on the tapes there's a game called commando it's the port of the capcom arcade yep. game and that was famously rushed um the developers the the program didn't have much time to put it in because they wanted to get in their stores by christmas um and so it basically was a little bugged in places um essentially the commodore 64 has eight hardware sprites and with a with your very clever with your timing you could recycle them before the the frame was drawn yeah, okay. um but if you're not careful and you have like your eight sprites and you have a ninth and you've got like a virtual like reusing one in such a way that you get nine on a screen line the display will start messing up and so commando wasn't really written from that. and cleaned up properly because the developer didn't have much time and so this happened a lot so i've got this machine i've got the the basic programming manual that comes with it and it's like eight-year-old me goes i can do better which was not the case at all quite frankly um i i, I sadly don't have the that program what i'd written but i'd written like i remember just using the graphic characters to draw what looked like soldiers that weren't which just it was terrible and i think i we I all start somewhere what, though right we we that's exactly right and so from there i was going to the library and borrowing like the usborne programming books um they were a prolific UK publisher in the, the early 80s. I mean, they're still around, but they were doing yeah. a lot of these books More on so then. like basic programming on, on all of these. So I'd borrow those and type those listings in. And I really didn't do much of it until I got to uni. Um, when I was in high school in the 90s, it wasn't much programming stuff in the syllabus, um, which is a bit of a shame. So I never really... Like, oh, that sounds like the education system from, the, from, from that period. Yeah, I'm, I can get that. <laughs> um, so... I never really picked up programming stuff on the PC until I got to uni when I was doing Java or web stuff because .com, .com era at that point. Um, and then I started playing around. Eventually, I got hooked on playing around with um, the XNA stack from from Microsoft, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, which was, um, for those who hadn't heard of it, it was basically a bunch of libraries written on top of .NET that you could run on your Windows PC or you could port over to the Xbox 360. And they had a thing called the Creators Club that, using a retail 360, you could connect it to your PC over the network, download games to it. What kind of sucked, and ultimately why I sort of stopped playing around with it, was that whilst creators in Australia could publish games to the Creators Club, you couldn't buy them. There was a yeah. whole bunch of stuff around the, the certification, um, and at the time, getting a game certified to appear on the console, like as in OFLC certification, was actually really expensive. And so it just wasn't feasible for them to do that. It's not um, a cheap exercise these days, if we're being fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gotten better, but, but more it's, of an obstacle it's, back then. I understand. Yeah, yeah. but it's, but it was but it was a really big obstacle, and and so I sort of got to the point where it's like, well, 
I like this library and this platform. It works really nicely and it's really cool. Like a highlight was I remember having a bunch of friends over for a playtest night. It's like, here's this game. And I remember just play, having it for like four or five hours playing, not crashing or doing anything. It's just like, it was it was a simple Asteroids game. Uh, it wasn't much, but it was sort of like the first big thing I'd put together. I mean, I had written some things on the C64. They're actually, to mess around with emulators, they're still up. They've been archived in this big project called Gamebase. Um, they were for a crap games competition, so they were deliberately naff. The Asteroids game on the on the Xbox was naff, but not deliberately naff. It was, you know, early experiments. And so yeah, I put learn. that aside. Um, and eventually, through the eggings of a friend, I picked up Unity um, about 2009 or so. Started working on stuff. And um, and then eventually, I released my first game, which is a, a game for iOS and Android called Pocket, Pocket Dog, Dog Fights. Dogs, right, yeah. Um, which was basically a sort of sh- little, very simple plane shooter inspired a bit by Time Pilot. Um, it's sadly long off the app stores because the 32-bit apocalypse and all of that stuff, and it was just too much of a pain. I made like $500 off it, um, most of that on iOS. Android was victim to refund piracy. Basically, oh, people yeah, would okay. buy it, and if you, you refunded it in a couple of hours, you could keep the APK because there was no DRM on it. Um, and so, yeah, it sort of turned me off Android a lot. Um, so on that stuff, I'm very... That's fair enough, too, really. Yeah. Um, and so that taught me a lot. Um, that got me to doing some advert games. And then the first proper, proper game that I worked on for someone else was um, I joined League of Geeks in 2014 on Armello. That was sort of at the time when they just shipped their alphas, uh, the first backer alpha. Um, yes. I was there for a year, yeah, basically to, to hitting 1.0. Um, and so I was basically doing UI programming because I was only part-time because um, a whole bunch of stuff, but basically that was when they were very big into the profit share thing and I couldn't really justify working full-time on a game where I wasn't being paid right at the moment. So yeah. that... Yeah, it's a leap of faith. And it was a leap of if, faith. If and your yeah, no, life situation doesn't necessarily allow that, then it's you know a risk that's, you can't take. That's, that is it. And it was a risk. Um, I mean, eventually, so I wrapped up when the game hit 1.0. Um, they weren't able to keep me around, um, which was bittersweet. Um, and so that was an interesting experience. Again, like I was mostly doing UI stuff, which I, which is not really where sort of my personal preference is. Uh, I'm more interested in doing gameplay stuff, but because I wasn't there all the time, it was the best fit. Um, that makes sense. So from there, I spent a few years doing games adjacent work. I joined a, a, a studio called Well Placed Cactus. They were, they started, they were a game studio that they did a mobile game, it flopped, and they started picking up work that was event, basically installations. So um, we were using Unity Game Tech to build like interactive systems and visualizations and things like that. Yes. Um, I had a project. One of the things I worked on was really cool. Was I had a couple of things that went in at the Oz Open. Um, it was a one year one. We did a project for a client that was basically a little interactive uh, tennis game using the Xbox One Kinect. Oh yeah, very cool. Um, I guess saturation on limitations of this is way up. And um, I did some stuff. We had some clients in the States in in automotive. And so we did a, a VR project advertising some vehicles um, in VR that you actually got to drive that was installed at the LA Auto Show a couple of years. So you go in there and you it was in two parts. The first part was like messing around in VR, looking at the car and looking at the car and learning about some of the design factors. And then the second part had you driving it down this simple, this simple course. And it was like you had the actual wheel hooked up to like a, a high-end Fanatec uh, wheel set and 
actually just messing around for it in VR was was kind of thing. It was a kind of cool project to work on. So we did a lot of things like that. I um, didn't have these in my notes whatsoever. This is a fascinating aspect. Yeah, <laughs> told you we we're going to get some weird lore. Yeah, it's like um, okay, League of Geeks, Armello. Yeah, cool. This this is all here, and I've got notes and those sort of things. But then, oh, hang on, what's this? What's this? Yeah, side? So that's fantastic. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, I I have stuff um in, in my portfolio about it, but yeah, I don't talk about it a lot because yeah, sort of because it was white label stuff. I can't talk about it massively publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Cactus got acquired by Deloitte at the end of 2017. So I spent a couple of years there. That was something that didn't quite work out for me. Um, massive cultural fit. I'm not really a big corporate person um, is the best way to put it. Um, and then got made redundant. Was made for, for big corporate, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, so eventually I got made redundant when COVID happened and we, we lost a lot of our work because it was all event and sort of show kind of based. Yes. And so... Yeah, um, those projects weren't able to If you to can't have us. events and shows, then, yeah, the work dries yeah. up. That's it. Um, yeah, so then eventually I was spent quite a few months um, looking, which was basically during, you know, our Victorian lockdown. So it was probably for the best. I was also The never-ending lockdown. Yeah, lockdown two, the one that never ended. Um, and so I spent a lot of time just recovering from just being burnt out. I was sort of like, do I still want to make – do I still want to program and, and things like that? Um and then eventually I joined Dragon Best Studios. Um, the start of 2021, I was there for not quite two years. Um, I wrapped so I guess, up at the end of last year. I guess before we really delve into that part, because obviously that leads us towards Enchanted and the, and the current day and, and the impending launch. Um, you obviously you went from a phase there of feeling, I don't know if disillusion is necessarily the right word, but you're unsure of your place within this within this whole space going forward to suddenly here's the opportunity I'm in. I guess what, what changed in your head throughout that time, like when, we, when that opportunity had emerged, but did you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go and I'm looking for an opportunity or yeah. where, where were you at kind of emotionally and kind of in terms of your own headspace at that period? So, I mean, so at the time, like I'd been doing some of my own stuff on the side, um, a, a project called backfire, which is a twist on yep. a twin stick kind of shooter, um, which is currently like, I've sort of, I sort of burnt myself out working on that because I've sort of stuck in the loop where I couldn't quite nail down what it needed to be. Um, yes. And so, um, so I had, I w- logically would have made sense to pick that up when I was made redundant, but I just, I was feeling a little disillusioned because a lot of it was, um, partly was the kind of stuff we were doing for the last few years um, had meant that it, it, it was projects that didn't really last long term. And I sort of, you know, going through things like seeing the 32-bit apocalypse happen and a lot of the, increasingly a lot of the stuff that I love about games, the, the, a lot of the, the really sort of core games I want to play just never really finding audiences. And yeah, so, I like, I love these. I love something for me that's really important is games where I can just get into the zone. Um, that's why I sort of love, like, a lot of these these retro throwback games that, that do it right where I can just zone out and play through. They just really good sort of thing at the at the right time. Um, and so I sort of felt a bit drained by that because it's like I could never really work on a bigger game on my own. I don't have the the personality that works best as a team leader. I, yes. I'm 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 the I'm the I'm the support. I'm the follower. I'm the one who helped build you. But I I don't have the public persona to to lead the team to be like your auteur that's going to yeah, be. Don't, don't make me be the driving force, but let me let me help power this thing behind the scenes. That that's very much it. And so. And I'd applied for a few that didn't work. And um, so the opportunity came up at Dragon Bear. I applied. That was actually, because of the time, it was actually 
there were a lot of applicants. And so I actually didn't get it. I actually didn't get the position. Um, I got a secondary call a few weeks later um, for some for some stuff um, for a small for what was going to be a smaller contract, which was really just like for me, it's like that would have been good because it's like see if, like at least even if I've worked there for a shorter period, whether I know if I if I wrapped up there or whatever, whether I still want to write code for a living, I I know. Um, and I was lucky that really their culture um, things worked out that I was able to stay on a lot longer. Um, I clicked with them. They clicked with me. They really liked having me around and we were able to make it work longer. Um, and yeah, and I've I sort of really kind of found my itch and, and sort of got it rekindled. And a lot of that really comes down to the culture that um, the studio directors, Paulina and Alesco ran with. They just, I think, because they had a similar background to me in that they'd yeah, worked okay. corporate tech and non-tech and stuff didn't want before. any of it. <laughs> yeah, and just not were not, like eventually I had their, their sort of, their fill of their stuff um, and they started um, the work on Proto Enchanted um, at, at a moment, eventually got a company out of it and all of that. Um, so I'm really incredibly grateful to them for the for the opportunity because, yeah, it's got me, you know, I'm looking, right now I'm looking at what my next is um, and, you know, just finding the right sort of dev studio that has a good positive culture. Um, but it's also, lot- not, not, not only that, because I think, I mean, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but we obviously hear about some fantastic things going and a lot of developers, you know, within the scene locally, it seems like, it seems like, uh, the, the change that we've needed to see within the industry in terms of conduct and those sort of things seem to have been largely, I don't want to, again, don't want to paint with the broadest brush in the world, but largely seem things seem to be tracking really well here, but it's not yeah. only just that, but it's also the right fit for you. Is it a project yeah. that inspires you? Is it, um, you know, the right dynamic is the working situation going to allow for you to do things the way you need to do things, etc. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Like I was, I was lucky with that and I just landed on that. Um, again, you know, there was still sort of weren't as many pickings at the time. And I'd been through a few others that project sounded cool, um, but I didn't quite get through the application process. Um, it's funny when I applied for them, I applied for, for another studio that I didn't, that I didn't work out with. And I'm sort of glad because, it sounded like it wasn't the right cultural fit oh, um, right. that other studio. So I'm glad for that. So that's always the thing. And it's like, I, one of those things I feel particularly crossing into my forties as a dev, who's not a senior or a lead um, is that, yeah, there's sort of a certain kind of thing that I want in terms of the right culture, the right cultural fit of being like, this is sort of the thing I want um, to sort of feel comfortable in. And yeah, I was lucky that, I had that with, um, you know, I was lucky that the Dragon Bear team offered that and it's the, the thing I keep looking for with whatever's next, basically. <laughs> now, I would be remiss, um, given that Enchanted is now, as of when this episode goes live, and I better just check my calendar to make sure I've got the exact thing in my head here. Episode goes up on the 23rd. We are five days away from the PC launch of Enchanted at the point of time that this episode goes live. So... I guess allow me to enter plug mode, listeners. I'm, I apologize here, but we should talk a little bit about the game. Oh, absolutely. What is it? So it's basically a cooperative in management game. Um, it is one to four players that is local or um, remote and um, a combination of both. And the idea is you play a group of adventurers and you've come back to your uncle's inn after like a semester at adventuring school for like summer break kind of deal. It's sort of a fantasy-flavoured Australia. So there's a little First Nations stuff, a little other stuff in there. Um, there's a lot of consultation that was done with First Nations people during development. Of course, yep. Um, and you basically arrive, and there's an evil wizard who's taken over your uncle's inn. Um, 
and you basically go into a bargain with him that if you can't turn things around in like 28 days he will take possession of it and forever and if you win he's gone and you can you know run it whatever and so each day is split up into two phases there's a morning and an afternoon afternoon phase and the idea is you'll have like a bunch of customers come in and i'll start off offering ordering potions so i'll order potions and you'll you have to fill up the dispensers get potions serve them potions then you bring food into the mix steaks and then um gradually gets more elaborate more elaborate so you've got that sort of chaos controlled chaos like you expect in overcooked or something um and there's and yeah it slowly piles on more elements there's the little like sort of meta narrative of the stuff with the wizard he's throwing things in the spanners in the works to try and stop you from from succeeding (laughs) and things of course build up to a hectic climax at the end um and so the the really big challenge is like you've got the you've got the par goals you've got to try and meet of like can you serve enough customers to earn enough points to sort of proceed and then at the end of each day you have sort of a night sort of a night phase which delivers little bits of narrative and you also got little tasks that you can do that sort of give you buffs and debuffs for the following day. So you might yeah. have a buff that gives you like, oh, you've got um, a couple of extra potions because you have sort of like a basic level of potions and then an advanced level. And the advanced potions are from mixing them and they give you some some special buffs that you need to um, serve customers with. And so you yes. might have a bunch, a couple of them already pre-prepared. You might have something, you might have picked the wrong buff and suddenly there's a bunch of shells, which are your currency, spread around the inn when the next day starts that you've got to clean up because of course one of the hazards is a thief who'll try to steal them so you've got to sort of be wary to catch them prevent them swatting stuff out um and so yeah you sort of get the controlled chaos like we've played a lot of it both remotely when we've all been at home and in the office during development um of like just trying to make sure you're serving the customers passing stuff over and um you know trying to fulfill those orders as quickly as possible because you've got this queue of customers that sort of sits off the screen and so it throws in a bunch of customers and if you serve them all you've done the phase and the next phase starts like each day each each morning afternoon has like multiple sort of waves that you've got to got to yeah, contend with um and if yeah, you don't get them all I'll, I'll admit something that i've really enjoyed with the the hands-on opportunities that i've been able to get uh, you know things like packs for example um as, as a particularly recent um opportunity yeah, it's, I, it's always I, we gone down really, really good... well, and you you touched on things like overcooked, and I, I mean, you know, I think of even other local uh, parallels, things like camped out, for example. That you know, oh, yeah. um, what was that last? Uh, when was that now? Last year? Yeah, last year that came out. Um, so those those sort of parallels are there, but it it feels like it fits perfectly within that kind of sphere, but at the same time introduces other elements that feel distinctly its own yeah um that was one thing that uh, yeah we did a lot of iteration over over time with specifically with a lot of feedback from the publisher um twin sales um you know they they'd conduct they'd help conduct some tests for us and we also did a few um showings at some of the acme proving demonstration stuff yes so um we got a lot of nice feedback and iterations there um it did meant there was some stuff that was cut over time which is a little sad some of some of the stuff i worked on um, but that that's that's the nature of game development. You're always going to lose stuff to make a better final product. Uh, and I think that, um, yeah, we stand out quite distinctively. We're also not, like, you don't get the... One of the things I always hear about Overcooked, I don't have people to play it with, so uh, I've never really sat down to try it. But I hear that that tends to... The frenetic nature of it tends to lead to a lot of 
a lot of vocal frustration in friend groups. Yeah, um, yeah, we... I've been um, shouted at by my wife a couple of times. <laughs> um, one of the things that's uh, great also when Enchan- we're playing Overcooked. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that's that's um, great with Enchanted is that we we sort of gone for a very more cozy vibe. So yep. even if things don't go wrong, you don't kind of get that. It's not the end. You don't of the kind world. of get into that. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, try to get a, a fair chunk of the friction out of that and be be pretty fair for players. Um, because we've had players in in test audiences who haven't been big gamers or anything so there's been a chance to just get some you know stuff to make sure to ease the friction for folks who aren't you know hardcore into um what they're doing yeah i'm with you no i mean i was thinking one of of my questions was you know what what do you learn from the likes of the overcooked and those sorts of titles and um that seems to be a very important one i guess not something i'd necessarily stewed upon at the time when i was playing it but that might have just been kind of the the nature of playing it at a at a public event like a pax or something like that is that there's like Sure, maybe the game's not putting out the frantic, frenetic sort of pace, but everything swirling around behind me is frantic and frenetic, and so maybe it just kind of instilled a little bit of that in me, whether I liked yeah. it or not. But um, yeah, upon reflection, I mean that that's certainly something that yeah, it kind of does stand in contrast a little bit to some of those those other titles. Um, yeah, and something that I think when I play it in a a more appropriate environment is going to stick out even more. I hope. Yeah, I think I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens like now. Um, once we launch, once the game launches on PC and then consoles, consoles are coming down the line. Um, basically, um, it's to be confirmed when that is. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah, don't get you in trouble for that. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually don't have the information. Basically, we've partnered. Um, once once that's public, I can I can scream about it. Um, but yeah, once I know. That'll be when it when it and and can and can talk about it publicly. Um, yes. I yeah, it was it was like when we when I when we got told the release date, like they passed it on. We had a little celebration for Goldmaster, and I was like, I've got to keep this zipped up for like three weeks of like I know when the release date is because I've got some friends who are like really looking forward to it as well, and it's just like I know the release date, but I cannot tell you. Um, I have to hold that, and then the the morning when the when the the Steam page went up for pre-orders, it's like. I, I spammed their discords like we have a release date and they went off the I off the would thing. be the friend cursing you if that's if that's the tack you took. You go you've come out and said, I know the date, but you don't No, oh. no, it's just like I was like oh, you just, you just no, had it in no. your head. I know I couldn't say yeah. No, I couldn't say a thing. It's all I can say is like, look, when I know and it's public, I'll be sure to tell you. Um once it's public, I can't do anything before that. Yeah. And it's just like I don't you know. And that they sort of was, when they got they said that it's like they were cool with that. And it's just like once once I know, I'll be sure to tell you. Once it's public, I'll be sure to tell you. And yeah. It's one of those challenging things about being under NDA or embargo or whatever the yeah. case happens to be at different points. It's it's, it's yeah, a blessing absolutely. in some ways and a curse in others. So <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Because it's sort of like, um, you know, when, when, it's, when I've been doing stuff for like some of the recent games I've done for, for P2, it's like I wanted to sort of mention, at least in my, my channel's Discord, my, it was like, I've been looking at this. I can't say much about it, but I am looking at it and I'll let you know when the review's up so you can check it out. And even that's like... And sometimes I wanna... you can't even do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's nice. It's, and it's, I guess it's kind pain. of rare, but you might get a AAA every now and then that says, hey, like, because maybe it's good for their social media side of things yeah. to say, hey, you know, Critic X has it. But some of the smaller games, no, that thing's under yeah. lock and key until, until until the reviews are suddenly, you know, out there. Exploding out there. Yeah. It's always been a, an interesting challenge to work with. <laughs> Yeah, marketing is a is a strange and crazy beast, but that, um, 
absolutely oh, a, a challenge for everyone at dragon bear at the moment ahead of ahead of the launch in a matter of days yeah. but i mean um, so yeah i mean it's just a case of you know they've been working with the the publisher um to to sort of coordinate all of that all of that stuff out there and you know just see all, all, all the fun little, yeah I, I hope as well it's it's a fun game um it was really cool to work with the team it's something unique and different it's like for me it was also sort of a different experience to work on of like stuff that you know mostly the stuff my, my own personal stuff tends to be single player focused so working on it the not that <laughs> yeah it's not that at all like you can play it single player but you really want to play with friends to just master it and again what's great is that you've got the mixture of pardon me of both local and remote play so and you can even mix that in so you could have you with a partner locally and then you could remote have like someone playing else over like um play over the the, the network play and they could have a partner as well so you know, just have a voice call uh, mediating orders and you, you're all good. And that's it's really cool that it just works flexibly like that. And a lot of that was how we were testing and development. You know, we'd have a, we'd hop in a Discord channel, someone starts the the thing, opens up a room, we'd all join and we just, you know, play the, the thing. Also have screen shares up for recording so someone could record so we could pick of up course, bugs, yeah. um, which was really convenient for that. Um, helped our QA, our QA uh, person really help us just solve them as much stuff as we could. Um, which is sort of the point where we're at right now. Just uh, the the rest of the team is just finalizing all those little bits, locking down, S- squash the last few things, make sure it's good to go. Yeah, pretty much. It's an exciting time. Yeah. Um, and so obviously you've touched on the the next chapter, which at the moment you you kind of said you you're looking around, you're exploring, you're trying to work out what you want. Do you have ideas about what you would most like to find yourself involved with? Again, I think the big thing for me is like. If you've have you heard of the door problem? Um, yes, yes. Yeah. So uh, for those who haven't heard of it, the door problem was a, a comment uh, by a game designer, Liz England, and she basically wrote a blog post to sort of explain how she describes what she does, and then she built upon it to sort of talk about what other game development disciplines do for the same thing. So I kind of see myself ideally as a gameplay programmer. That's sort of the stuff. Like I don't have the the brain the brain skills to be like writing engines or writing shaders or things like that. Um, so gameplay just the general interactions and things like that that's sort of my wheelhouse and what i really enjoy so that and a bit of support stuff like tooling is always a thing like um i did a lot of so on enchanted i I did some gameplay programming i did a bunch of ui programming working with our um ui artist who sort of designed everything sort of he brought stuff in i sort of linked it all up i did a little bit of audio integration work with our sound team bring in their fmod projects and hooking up triggers and and stuff for sound effects and and music um so that's sort of the area where i see myself so i'm not necessarily like going to be a lead gameplay developer but i'm doing a lot of a lot of that but a lot of the, the mid integration stuff to help just make it work connect I'm the in, dots yeah connect the dots very much so that, that's actually team, probably me being a bit too reductive and simplifying it there's more to it than that but it's yeah, like it connecting is. those but yeah those that's desperate sort of pieces like and pulling them together working, working at that middle level is really where i find myself sort of fitting best um so definitely the team that lets me have an opportunity to do that doing some gameplay stuff and of course, a bit of support stuff like tooling and whatever. That's really where I see where I fit right now. And so, finding that just the right studio to do something like that is definitely, definitely what what the what the focus is on. I'm lucky that I can sort of take. I've taken a bit of a breather the last few months, just mostly because I've wanted to think plans about um, working on the channel stuff. And yeah. also, I've just been doing some some other personal development, um, like on a, on a retro project. Um, that's been sort of a big side thing the last few last month or so um just been like scratching that itch of wanting to write something for a vintage or 
modern vintage system in this case. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of what I'm really looking forward to is just landing that next opportunity for something nice long-term thing. I really enjoyed being on a project for nearly two years that was that really changed a lot in development because I hopped on Enchanted was sort of pre-alpha-ish. And so I was on board, helped it get through alpha, through beta, and basically to gold master up to, up to release, um, yeah. when I when I rolled off. Um, no, I mean that's that's all really exciting though for, for myself as you know someone who gets to gets to chat with you from time to time and and learn about a little bit about what you're up to, and I'm sure all the listeners as well, um, because. I mean, yeah, Enchanted is shaping up well. There's lots of, I mean, we, you obviously touched on Armalo before and, and, you know, lots of cool little projects that you've been involved with. And um, I'm sure any team will greatly benefit from having your presence there. And so it's just a matter of what is that right fit as you've kind of touched on already. Yeah, I think that's it. Like, I'm definitely I'm definitely relishing the next opportunity now. So um, I think it's just, you know, it's a slow start to the year, but now things are ramping up. I imagine, you know, GDC momentum has pushed a lot of that out. Like we're recording yes. this basically on on the eve of GDC. On the, yeah. yeah, so it's like I'm lo- I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. Um, I I would love to go, but it's way out of my wheelhouse anyway in terms of budget, let alone everything else. Um, but I know a lot of people over there, and they look they're pretty excited for networking and stuff. Um, and yeah, and hopefully people will come back, and they'll probably be ready to you know expand what they're looking at for their teams as their projects move forward. And you'll be right there waiting for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ready to ready to get some applications in and hopefully have a few chats and and see what the what the circumstances are like. And yeah, like I said, myself and I'm sure the people listening wishing nothing but the best for you in that particular endeavor and uh, looking forward to uh, you just you know whispering on the download what it is you're actually working on. And <laughs> once not, once the yeah, yeah. appropriate times are, of course, um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah sorry, of course. It's it's it sucks like holding on for so long. It's like. <laughs> You just have the things. It's like I want to tell people who I care about this, even privately. It's just like no, you can't because it's not public. <laughs> it's always one of those challenges. Paul's a media snitch. You'll shout it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we start to wind things down, I guess cycling in again a bit more so on on you specifically. Um, is there anyone out there who really has inspired you in the way you go about your work, and whether that's from the 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 content creation and writing side of things to the game development side? Yeah, okay. So one of the big ones for game development, which probably shouldn't be a surprise, at least based on some of the other stuff we're talking about, is Jeff Minter. I mean, he's a guy who's been working on games commercially pretty much for as long as I've been alive. And I think you've really got to respect it because the kind of stuff Llamasoft does is very niche. It's always been a struggle. And there are, there's actually, um, there is a great documentary in the works called Heart of Neon, which is about, which which he's the focus of. Um, it's not out yet. Uh, I've been following the creator um, um, on Patreon for it for a while. Um, and I, I think it's going to be this year that it'll drop. It's probably worth checking out because sort of his whole story, especially about, because alongside the game stuff, he also experiments with a lot of um, light synthesizer stuff. Um, if you yeah, had yeah. an Xbox 360, the inbuilt visualizer was written by him. Oh, um, right. Okay. Yeah. So that was sort of the big thing. Um, they, they did that, unfortunately... Um, yeah, so if you have a 360 that's still around, pop some music CDs in and or, or rip them or whatever, and yeah, mess around with the visualizer. That was sort of, um, he's done a whole bunch of stuff going back to even the 80s with some of that stuff. Um, and yeah, I think it's just the vibe. Like, there's something about just being brutally earnest about the kind of stuff you want to make, the kind of influences that it is. You know, a lot of Jeff's stuff has early arcade influences. It's a lot of stuff that I love. And I just appreciate 
him as a as a person for just being different enough that I think we need more of in in the games industry in a lot of ways. Um, so that's sort of my big one. Um, there's a few other like there's a, a lot of local people and friends I think that I probably would think um, I'd probably miss someone out, which wouldn't be fair. Um, in terms of the content stuff, um, a lot of the people I really really um someone i really have a lot of respect for would be a chap by the name of kevin bunch he does a youtube series called atari archive which is a game by game chrono gaming project for the atari 2600 but one of the things i love that he does so every episode focuses on one game at the time of writing he's just finished 1981 so it's about to be the big explosion on the 2600 but one of the things i love that he does that a lot of other youtube people don't is the context so every episode he'll cover Sets a game. the stage, what was going on at the time. and the, the Yeah, so he'll look at stuff that's like on the parallel console. So things like um, like these early 70s consoles, like the the Channel F, the Intellivision. Um, we'll start seeing ColecoVision stuff soon. The um, Bally Professional Arcade, which is one that we never saw in Australia. He just, just did a massive 40-minute documentary on that console, which is like it had this really cool homebrew scene because it had a little keypad. You could get a cartridge with basic on it and plug a cassette recorder up so you could write your own programs save them and like there was newsletters and communities in the early, like the late 70s early 80s of people writing games for this thing like and it wasn't a, a hit because it was a very expensive machine because it was designed basically by arcade it was cut down version of arcade yeah. hardware yeah okay. and so it was really expensive and the components weren't cheap yeah it wasn't cheap um and so it didn't do that well but it just had this really cool hobbyist community that's like all this it just made all cool stuff for it um it's a machine like i learned a lot about that and it's like i would never collect it because it's going to be too expensive but just learning about that machine and seeing it in action like all doing like the real hardware capture really cool it's sort of like it's one of those things i love is the context around these games and i think it helps you appreciate them a lot more when you see what everyone else was doing and not just treating them in isolation um, yeah time place is a huge huge part of everything really but especially as we start diving into the older the more retro kind of focused titles within the gaming space yeah um absolutely like again there's a few other creators who do a lot of cool stuff but i think those are the that's the kind of stuff that just sort of really inspires me to like wanting to try and do better with my own stuff more than anything no that's awesome um some lighter ones as we start to wrap things up uh and i don't know you've been doing your research beforehand so i'm sure you know these are coming anyway um if you could be credited for any game in any capacity, it could be as simple as special thanks, but it could be one particular component. This kind of, I guess, leads itself to you know something we were talking about early on where there might be a game that's otherwise not necessarily fantastic, but there is one core pillar in it that is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I should have connected that properly at the time, but <laughs> I didn't. My bad. Bad host. No. Um, oh. But is there a game that you just wish that you could have been a part of development on well i'm gonna go laundry lists are allowed to i <laughs> know i'm gonna go for with a game called morpheus um morpheus was a commodore 64 game developed by a chap called andrew braybrook um he was the guy that wrote paradroid um yep and it was a game that was one of the things about it is that the development of it was chronicled in a british magazine called zap 64 um he did the same thing with paradroid like basically he has his journal that he um, basically sent them to and they printed yes. it in the magazine over like six months or so. And it's a game that is very ahead of its time, but in a way, but not because it does a lot of things right, but it tries to do a lot of things that it doesn't quite nail. 
works. Yeah. So the idea is you control this big spaceship and you have to go into these sectors and blast these little sort of things. You blast them, you blast enough, and the sector collapses. It's very abstract and it's and it's kind of hard to explain. Um, but as you do that, you earn money, and the money you have to buy ship parts. And the thing you have to yeah. do is that the ship parts, like there's this element of time that the game ticks through. And as it ticks through, certain weapons and systems become obsolete. So you have to get rid of them and upgrade. So you've got to keep doing that and keep progressing through the game. And eventually the the meta time limit gets to sort of this high cycle and everything's obsolete and you can't beat it. It's it's a game that I think it tries to do something, but it tries to do a lot on a, on a, single, on a joystick with a single fire button. So it's very awkward to play. Um, and I, I think if someone revisited the idea now, you could probably make it work. But being able to just like bounce off that game a bit more of the design, because one of the things you get if you, you read the diaries, um, and if they're supplementary modes, I can pass all this stuff to you that might be worth yeah, throwing in the in the show notes. Yeah, for um, sure. I'll, I'll pass a bunch of stuff on and then um, basically evolve that design a bit, maybe help simplify it. Like basically some design discussion would be the thing of like, would love to would have loved to have contrib- been a fly on the wall and been able to contribute to maybe making that game work a bit better on its original platform that's that's a really really cool one and uh certainly something that, yeah if you've got those details feel free to pass them on we'll bake them into the notes and people can explore um thoroughly themselves after the fact uh <laughs> conversely and i guess maybe going down a similar sort of track uh if you could replay any game strike it from your memory and get to experience game x all over again what game would you just love to be able to have that revelatory moment with again? I think Metal Gear Solid. Yep. Um, so as I'm recording, recording this, um, recording this, my games group is actually replaying it, and oh, I've, nice. I've admitted, yeah. So we do a game of the month thing, and it's like there's a bunch of games selected, and you vote for one, that one, the vote. It's it admittedly is kicking my butt because I originally played the PC port of it that got released in 2000. Right. Um and it's a very interesting experience going back to playing it on the, on an actual PlayStation. I mean, I'm like motioning to the side where my PS2 is cause it's all hooked yep. into my, into my setup chain. I've been playing it there and it's like experiencing that story fresh because I could sit there and sit, sit there and just, there are bits that I could still quote, even though it's been a fairly long time since I played it, it just stuck in my head so heavily. So being able to experience all of that, all the twists, all the turns with a completely fresh mind would be amazing. Yeah, I can't even, I can't even imagine what that would be like for someone in, in this day and age to experience that game for the first time. Let alone kind of quote unquote re-experience it and you know having never had the context. But yeah, it's, it's it's an experience that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I fully agree on that one. <laughs> Let alone everything that's kind of been layered atop it over the years since. Yeah, with the with the with the rest of the series, exactly. absolutely. No, uh, fantastic choice there. And uh, Rob, I wanted to make sure I close by just saying thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far. Um, as as we've touched on already, of course, Enchanted is now in a matter of days. That is March 28th coming to PC, consoles, TBD. So stay tuned for more information around that. But thank you so much for, for sharing this journey so far. And if people did want to learn more about what you're up to, check out any of your content. And of course, um, learn more about Enchanted. Where should people go? Okay, so for me, um, the best point of call is my Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Rob underscore Caporetto. Um, we'll have that in the show notes for sure. Yep. Um, 
Beyond the Scanlines is youtube.com forward slash at Beyond the Scanlines. Um, I don't have a fixed schedule at the moment for when videos go up, but they'll go up. When they're uh, ready. When they're ready, yeah. When it's done. Um, there is a mailing list available, um, which I think you can get to from video descriptions, um, that I just send an email when every video goes out. Part of some of the stuff I've been trying to do to sort of divorce myself from being reliant on on the, the algorithm side of things. Um, uh, for Enchanted itself... Um, the Dragon Bear website obviously has a whole host of details. Yeah, there for you. that's probably Make the sure best. Check it out on YouTube. The... Yeah, and of course, the game um, is coming to Steam this week. Yeah, you can find that's it on Steam pretty week. pretty easily. Um, I can't remember the, the the right Twitter for the studio. I'm a terrible person. That's um, right. I'll, but I'll yeah, see if I can dig that out while we're going. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's a game that like I'm incredibly excited for, and I uh, Dragon Bear at at Dragon Bear Games and yep. at Enchanted underscore Game for for the game itself yep yeah so that's that'll get you there um and of course yeah i'm really hyped to just see what people how people respond to it because it's one thing sort of in the controlled context of at a show but just seeing how everyone gets along with it yeah when it goes wild and it's been so long that for me to to see something i've worked on that's not just for an event that a few hundred people or a few thousand people might see but like a potentially much wider audience I'm, i'm genuinely really excited yeah, and he's hoping that it gets that traction and that uh, it does get picked up by tens, hundreds of thousands, millions. Let's even shoot for uh, let's shoot for the stars <laughs> shoot for the moon. as well, and Heck yeah. and um and see see what is possible. And of course, again, when the game comes to consoles down the line, um, Rob, as I've said a few times now, thank you so much for coming on this show and, and sharing the journey so far. And and uh, as I touched on earlier, hopefully all goes well in that next job pursuit, and that uh, <laughs> we see you working on some really cool things very very soon yeah thank you very much for having me it's been an absolute blast i love just having a chance to talk about some weird rubble law for a change (laughs) (laughs) and listeners as always thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next time That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Rob's story. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.